0: Welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast in which a middle-aged wastrel plays adventure game books on the internet. That middle-aged wastrel is me, H.J. Doom, and this episode we're delving into Ian Livingstone's Caverns of the Snow Witch, first released in 1984 as part of the Fighting Fantasy line. Caverns of the Snow Witch had quite an odd route to publication, but that's something I'll be talking about in more detail at the end of the playthrough. After the last bonus episode, which was something of a struggle, I'm delighted to be back playing a proper fighting fantasy book. I do have a couple of really tasty books for future bonus episodes, so there's something to look forward to the next time we diverge from the main focus of the podcast. So... Caverns of the Snow Witch was written by Ian Livingstone, with internal art by Gary Ward and Edward Crosby, and cover art, at least in my edition, by Les Edwards. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, this is a classic fighting fantasy game book, so we have our three stats, skill, stamina and luck, plus ten provisions, sword, sword leather armour and a backpack, and the obligatory potion, which will refresh one of our key attributes. This character, who I've decided to call Bork Slipjowl, is yeah fairly good. This was actually rolled up properly, honestly, for a change. Um, Bork has a skill of 11, a stamina of 19, and a very poor luck of 7. So... I've opted to take the potion of luck, which will restore my luck, and add one to the initial value. Let's dive straight in. Winters in northern Alansia are always cruel and bitter. The snow falls thick, and the icy wind blows hard, chilling everybody to the bone. For the past few weeks, you have been hired by a merchant called Big Jim's son, to protect his trading caravans as they roll their way slowly north to the frozen outposts. The horse-drawn carts are laden with cloth, utensils, weapons, salted meats, spices and tea, which are traded for furs and ivory carvings made from mammoth tusks. Big Jim is not usually worried about travelling north, as bandits only attack his caravans on the return journey. He is not alone in recognising the value of the northern goods. On this particular trip, you are walking ahead of six carts across a frozen lake. In the distance, you can see the snow-capped peaks of the Ice Finger Mountains jutting out of low cloud. Your destination lies at the base of the mountains, where the Northmen meet to trade. Snow is falling, but not too heavily. You stop to prod the ice with your sword to make sure it can bear the weight of carts, when suddenly the shrill call of a hunting horn breaks the silence. You stand up and run back to the cart to talk to Big Jim. He is sitting next to the driver of the second cart, puffing on a long briar pipe. A huge man with a great bushy beard, Big Jim is obviously a man to be reckoned with. There is on the facing page an illustration of Big Jim's son. I really, really like it. It's done in a style that has kind of hints of stained glass window and hints of woodcut. It's very, very different from the kind of quite cartoonish style we've been used to. A lot more arty, I want to say. I just think it's absolutely fantastic. You've got this guy with these deep eyes staring morosely at you out of the frame. It's, it's wonderful. Um, really, really good. Big Jim's blue eyes scan the horizon searching for signs of life in a deep voice he says sounds like it came from the outpost reckon you better go and investigate could be trouble get back quick you set off straight away towards the outpost at the base of Icefinger mountains you arrive two hours later at a scene of ugly carnage the snow is red with blood and all the wooden huts are smashed and torn down Six men lie dead, their bodies slashed, their axes at their sides in the snow. Judging by the size of the footprints, the creature that attacked the outpost must have been enormous. There's nothing you can do to help the unfortunate Northmen, so you head back towards Big Jim's caravan to report the news. You reach them in an hour, just as the daylight is fading, and relate the terrible events that have befallen the outposts. Big Jim orders the carts to be drawn into a circle to protect his men during the night. A large fire is built into the centre of the circle, and you sit down beside it to talk to Big Jim. Everybody is nervous, and a guard is posted to watch for signs of movement outside. In a low voice, Big Jim asks if you will hunt the terrible creature, for otherwise his business will be ruined forever. You smile and reply that you will track down the beast, but... Only for a purse of 50 gold pieces. Really tell this was written in Thatcher's Britain, can't you? Big Jim's drawer drops open and it takes a great deal of persuasion before he agrees to your demand. The snow finally stops falling as you settle down for the night. Sleep is a long time coming for your mind is active with thoughts of the impending hunt. When you wake, just after dawn, the fire is reduced to dying embers. Wisps of smoke rise gently into the morning mist. Not a sound is to be heard. You walk over to where Big Jim is sleeping and tap him on the shoulder. He wakes with a start and you tell him that you are setting off and hope to be back later in the day. You wave to the guards as the snow starts to fall again and make your way back to the outpost. So that's a nice straightforward set We're off on a monster hunt for profit. After the last game book, the uh, Endless Quest one, where we had a seemingly interminable opening monologue, uh, this feels very tight and I appreciate it. By the time you reach the outpost again, the bodies are blanketed with snow and the beast's footprints are covered over. The visibility is poor as you set off towards the mountains where you hope to find the abominable killer beast. The snow on the mountains is soft and you sink in up to your knees as you climb slowly up. You soon find yourself at the edge of a crevasse which is spanned by an ice bridge. Do you wish to cross the crevasse by the ice bridge or would you rather walk around the crevasse? I have a terrible head for heights and just that relatively straightforward description is making my insides go all squirmy, so I'm going to try and walk around the crevasse, rather than inching across the slippery ice bridge. That was a brilliant decision, because as you walk along the edge of the crevasse, the wind starts to howl, blowing flurries of snow into your face. You put your head down and stride into the wind, A dark shape suddenly looms out of the curtain of snow. A huge, hairy mammoth stands before you, its long tusks curving out threateningly. Trumpeting loudly, it lumbers forward to attack. The mammoth has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 11, making this an early test of our fighting prowess. Well, you know the deal by now. I'm going to roll some dice. I have slaughtered the mammoth in short order, which makes me feel a bit guilty. I don't know how ecologically threatened mammoths are in the world of Alansia, but, uh, well, suffice to say they've just become fractionally more endangered due to a rather unfortunate stabbing incident. So, uh, yes, I lost two stamina points, taking my stamina down to 17. It takes half an hour of hard walking to reach the end of the crevasse. You are now able to climb further up the mountain. The steep climb and the swirling snow combine to make the going slow. The snow is beginning to fall very heavily, swirling around in a strong wind. A blizzard is starting. Do you wish to use your sword to dig a shelter in the snow or would you rather press on? Now this is already a very difficult decision for me because it's not asking me to choose between left and right. So I'm going to have to rely on my native wit and try and puzzle this out. I feel like without actual fire, digging a shelter may actually just kill me quicker. So I'm going to take the option of just pressing straight on. The temperature is well below freezing point and the howling blizzard chills you to the bone. You struggle to walk through the snowstorm, but it drains your energy. Lose two stamina points. Do you still wish to walk through the blizzard, or would you rather dig yourself a shelter in the snow with your sword? Well, I think this is giving me a rather unsubtle hint that I'm an idiot, and I'm going to take that hint, and instead of walking myself to death in the snow, I'm going to try and dig a shelter with my sword, even though that sounds to me like a recipe for disaster. Now down to 15 stamina. You hurriedly cut blocks of ice out of the mountainside and build a makeshift igloo. You crawl into it as the blizzard blows down the mountain with ferocious power. Your body heat is retained inside the igloo and you're able to keep warm. However, you must eat two portions of your provisions to regain your strength after the tiring walk and the effort of building the igloo. This does not increase your stamina. An hour later, the blizzard dies down and you crawl out of your shelter to continue your quest. Well, thank goodness for the healing powers of a ham and cheese toasty and a lamb biryani. That's all I can say. This is going really badly. <laughs> really, really badly. Right from the outset, it's almost like I'm a buffoon. Underneath an overhanging rock, you see a small wooden hut built against the side of the mountain its roof is piled high with snow and long icicles hang down from the window ledges you see a set of deep footprints leading from the hut up the side of the mountain do you wish to enter the hut or would you rather follow the footprints in the snow my inner adventurer is telling me that i really do need to break into this house and ransack it for stuff i can nick so that's what i'm going to do The front door of the hut is frozen shut, and you have to batter it with your shoulder to open it. There is only one room inside the hut, containing the belongings of a fur trapper. Traps, furs and sacks are stacked in a corner of the room. A wooden bed, a table and chair and some cooking utensils show signs of recent use, and the ashes in the fire are still warm. Do you want to put some logs on the fire and warm up the cold stew in one of the pans? Or would you rather leave the hut and continue your quest? I think I'm going to go full Goldilocks on this trapper and going to find out if the stew is too hot, too cold or just right. The fire is soon roaring and crackling in the hearth. The heat of the flames radiates through your body and you revel in the warmth. The stew is delicious, and you feel your strength returning. Add three stamina points. That's helpful. That takes my stamina back to 18. With renewed energy, you decide to leave the hut to continue your quest. As you are about to leave the hut, you catch sight of some weapons lying under the bed. Do you want to take a couple of them with you? Or do you not wish to be encumbered by the additional weight and would rather leave without the weapons? Obviously I'm going to steal the weapons... We already established in the early parts of this adventure that my character is deeply mercenary, so therefore I think they would feel no shame whatsoever about ripping off a fur trapper's best weapons. So yeah, we're going to nick the weapons. I do like that it tries to sell you on the idea that there might be some downsides to stealing everything in sight, but it's not enough of a downside to even put me off for a second, let's be honest take a warhammer and a spear before leaving the hut. Outside, again, in the deep snow, you set off on your trek up the mountainside, following the footprints in the snow. Suddenly occurs to me that it might be a little bit weird when I turn up next to the trapper with my breath smelling of his stew and wielding a spear and warhammer that look eerily familiar to him. Oh well, we'll deal with that as and when... The high altitude and thin atmosphere make you pant for breath as you continue your steady climb, lose one stamina point. This is doing a very good job of selling the weather as a considerable danger. I mean, it's only like a stamina point or two here and there, but you know, it makes you sit up and take notice. I really, really like it. Suddenly, you hear the cry of a human voice followed by a ferocious roar. Not far ahead, you see a fur trapper fighting for his life against a gigantic bear-like beast with long white fur and sharp teeth protruding from its jaws. It is the killer beast that you have been hunting, the abominable Yeti. You watch the unfortunate trapper being gashed by the yeti's claws and falling face down in the snow. Incensed by the vicious attack, you scream at the yeti and run through the snow to attack it. There's another, I think, absolutely lovely illustration. It feels so kind of medieval or sort of early modern somehow. The yeti, his huge, huge claws and these two sort of almost shark-like eyes in a bear-like face, and you can see the trapper giving ground before it. its I just think it's really, really nice, really evocative, and just not like other fighting fantasy artwork we've seen so far, uh, which really appeals to me. So let's see what the Yeti's like in a scrap. Are you carrying a spear? Yes, I am. Do you have frostbite in your sword arm? No, I've somehow managed to dodge that particular Bit of bad luck. So, yeah, oh wow, we're uh, getting a lot of questions thrown at us here. Gripping the shaft tightly. You pull back your arm and hurl the spear at the snarling yeti. Roll one die. If you roll a one, something bad is going to happen. If you roll a two or greater, I assume something good is going to happen. I roll a six. Am I the only one who feels oddly aggrieved at the universe when I only need a two or more to pass? some test and I actually roll a six and it feels like I've wasted one of my sixes. Like I could need that six later and it's no longer available to me. I realise that is literally not how probability works, but yeah, overshooting by that much always feels a bit upsetting to me. The spear flies through the air and thuds into the yeti's shaggy chest. It roars in pain but does not fall. You quickly draw your sword and fight the enraged beast. The Yeti has a skill of 10, it's the second skill 10 creature we've faced so far, and a stamina of 9. I guess some stamina knocked off for the spear cast. I'm going to roll some dice. That was quite the titanic battle. I have been reduced to 11 stamina, but I have successfully murdered the Yeti. I think something very dramatic is going to happen, but before something very dramatic happens, I am just going to quickly stuff a portion of fish and chips down my gullet to take my stamina back to 15. You kneel down beside the fur trapper and turn him over slowly. His eyes are barely open and blood trickles from the corner of his mouth. The yeti has gouged deep wounds in his chest and you realise there is no hope of saving him. With a great effort, he reaches up and grabs you round the neck, pulling you down so that you can hear his dying words. He thanks you for trying to save him and insists on telling you his secret. In terrible pain, he struggles to whisper his story. He tells you that he has lived in the mountains for most of his life, hunting animals and trading their furs. But for the last five years, he has been searching for the legendary Crystal Caves and you know they're important because they've got capital C's. These caves have been cut out of a glacier by the followers of the Snow Witch, also with capitals, a beautiful yet evil sorceress who is trying to use her dark powers to bring on an ice age so that she can rule supreme over the whole world. The entrance to the crystal caves is high up on this very mountain. It is open But hidden by an illusion. The unfortunate fur trapper found it by accident only yesterday when he saw one of the Snow Witch's warriors seemingly walk straight through an ice wall and disappear. The trapper left a piece of fur hanging over the entrance so he could find it again the next day. Sadly, the yeti has put an end to his hopes. He asks you to enter the caves and to slay the vile Snow Witch and leave her followers without their leader. There are legends about great treasures being frozen in the walls of the Snow Witch's lair, which would provide ample reward. Hello, yeah, now, now he's got our attention. End of the world? Not so interested. But hard cash, that's a different story. The fur trapper suddenly grips you hard and then falls back silently into the snow. He's dead. You cover him with snow before deciding what to do. Fifty gold pieces await you if you return with evidence of a yeti's death to Big Jim's son, but the thought of a quest through the crystal caves beneath Ice Finger Mountains excites you, and you decide to set off to find them. I also enormously appreciate the fact that all of that was done in reported speech, so I didn't have to do an unconvincing regional accent. Everyone's a winner, especially you, dear listeners, Now that the snow has stopped falling, the sky is clear and blue. The air is cold and crisp and the snow crunches beneath your feet. Slowly, you make your way up the mountainside, looking for the cave entrance marked by the fur trapper. Suddenly, you hear a distant rumbling from above. The terrifying sound of an avalanche. Test your luck. Let's see how this pans out with our luck of seven. First... Die gives us a one. See, I'm building tension. Second gives us a three. Four, that is way below our luck of seven. So we are lucky. Luck now down to six. You look up to see great cascades of snow tumbling down the mountain. Fortunately, the avalanche sweeps down a ridge adjacent to the one you are climbing. Definitely sorting us out for classic cold-weather mountain encounters in this story. Ian Livingstone, playing very true to form. You make your way slowly up the mountain until you reach a rock face that is too steep to climb. You walk round the side until you see a massive wall of ice, which completely blocks a gully between two peaks of the mountain. The glacier. Your heart leaps as you catch sight of the piece of fur left hanging on the wall of ice by the trapper. Although you cannot see the entrance, you walk straight ahead. You shut your eyes as you think you are about to walk into a wall of ice, but you walk straight through the illusion and find yourself inside a long tunnel carved into the ice. You walk down it and soon arrive at a T-junction. If you wish to turn left, you can, or you can turn right. Well, we are back on familiar ground, dear listeners, and as we know... When we're given the binary choice, first one, always go left. So that's what we shall do. The tunnel bends round to the right. As you turn the corner, you almost bump into a tall, pale-skinned humanoid coming the other way. He is wearing a white cloak with a hood pulled over his head. He is a mountain elf, one of the Snow Witch's followers. What will you do? Nod your head at him and walk by nonchalantly? Tell him you've come to join the Snow Witch's followers or attack him with your sword. Now I'm not by nature a nonchalant person. I'm far too highly strung. So I'm gonna take that one off the table straight away. Sometimes the sensible thing to do when in an enemy dungeon surrounded by enemies is just do the big old stabbing thing. But It's possible he might give me some kind of important clue. And it wouldn't be an Ian Livingstone book if I didn't have to find at least 12 different magical doohickeys. So I'm going to tell him that I've come to join the Snow Witch's followers, I think. The Mountain Elf looks at you in disbelief and says, nobody of good heart would wish to join the Snow Witch. I am only here because of this. Throwing back his hood, the elf reveals a metal collar around his neck which glows in the semi-darkness. Only the obedience collar makes me serve her, he continues in a dour voice. If you wish to reiterate your desire to join the Snow Witch, you can, or would you rather change your story and tell the elf that you actually intend to slay her? I think I might do that. I mean, elves, traditionally good guys, I mean that is horrendously reductionist, but this is 1984... I'm going to go with elves, probably good rather than evil. The mountain elf looks at you and smiles. Now you're talking, he says. Kill her and free us. Here, take my cloak to disguise yourself and follow this tunnel until it branches. Take the right hand fork and good luck to you. You shake the elf's hand and run off down the tunnel. So right at the next fork. I need to say that because I have every chance of forgetting it. It's not just that I'm an idiot, it's also that it takes a certain amount of additional cognitive effort to read and say things out loud. So yeah, anyway, I've got a cloak. That's nice. Yeah, oh, brilliant. It does it for me. You soon arrive at the fork in the tunnel that the mountain elf mentioned, and deciding to take his advice, you enter the tunnel to your right. Further ahead, in the left-hand wall of the tunnel, you see a gap. You walk up to it and peer around to see a cave in which a Neanderthal is stripping the skin off a moose, making it ready for the large, simmering stewpot behind him. He is working very slowly and being yelled at by the gnome cook, who is wearing a white apron and waving a wooden spoon in the air. Do you wish to enter the crude kitchen, or would you rather creep past the entrance?' There is a nice picture of the Neanderthal, hard at work, or not at all hard at work as the case may be, and a suitably angry looking gnome who looks like he's in the midst of shaking his fist like a Scooby-Doo villain who's just been unmasked, if I'm honest. So do we want to go into the kitchen? (sighs) Probably we want to creep past the entrance. It'd be very churlish to have such an obviously skippable encounter turn out to be really important so i'm going to let discretion be the better part of valor, and i'm going to creep past the kitchen you wait until the gnome and the neanderthal look away before running past the cave opening and on down the tunnel in the distance you hear chanting voices nothing good ever comes in a fantasy story from chanting. Before long the tunnel ends at the entrance to a large cavern. Kneeling down before an ice effigy in the shape of a demon, their hooded faces pressed into the ice floor in worship are ten of the Snow Witch's followers. And there is a picture of the worshippers paying homage to the ice demon. The ice demon is sitting on its haunches in a way that sort of suggests it's answering a call of nature, I have to be honest. The grimace on its face doesn't do much to dispel that illusion, which makes the idea that these people are worshipping it a little bit sillier than perhaps was originally intended. There are two exits from the cave, one to your left and one to your right. Are you wearing a cloak? I am wearing a cloak. You pull down the hood of your cloak as far as possible and walk towards the tunnel exit on your right. Test your luck. My luck is six. I rolled a three and a four making seven. So my luck is now five and I am unlucky. You are almost at the entrance to the tunnel when the worshippers stop their chanting. They stand up and one of them calls out to you asking why you did not stop to sing the praises of the frozen one it's always one jobs worth isn't there and always one absolute jobs worth in this kind of situation Get their kicks from spotting minor infractions made by other people do you have a magic flute if so you can tell them that you've been ordered to go and play it for the snow witch or you can fight them or try and run for the tunnel it said there were 10 of them and obviously i don't have a magic flute So I guess I can try and run for it, but with a luck of five, that's not really going to happen, is it? Nothing saying that I can't drink my potion of luck. I'm going to drink my potion of luck, taking my luck up to an eight, adding one to my starting luck, as always. And we're going to try and leg it. The followers are a group of goblins, orcs and Neanderthals. As you make a run for it, the two creatures who are nearest try to stop you. One cracks his whip, trying to wrap it round your legs, while the other aims a dart at you. Test your luck. There we go. A three and a one, making for a total of four. And my luck now down to seven. So I am lucky. Both the dark and the whip fail to find their mark and you are able to run through the tunnel. The tunnel ends quite soon at a T-junction. To your left, you can hear cries for help. Do you wish to go left or right? we be a bit churlish to ignore the cries for help. And where there's someone crying for help, there's A, the possibility of me doing a dodgy regional accent, and B, the possibility of a clue. And I feel like we haven't really found any clues so far, and I'm beginning to get a little bit nervous. The tunnel ends at the edge of a pit, out of which a dwarf is trying to climb, but he keeps on slipping back. The floor of the pit is covered with large ice boulders which have crashed down from a shaft above. One lands on the dwarf's shoulders and you hear wild cheers from the top of the shaft as he tumbles on to the floor. The dwarf sees you and shouts, "'Curse you, stranger, if you do not aid me! We see that you are not wearing a collar!' Do you wish to help the dwarf out of the pit, or just ignore his pleas?" I think I'm going to try and help the dwarf out of the pit. You lie down and lean over the edge of the pit and tell the dwarf to grab your arm. Much to the annoyance of the spectators above, the dwarf escapes from the pit. You run together back to the junction where the dwarf turns right. You tell the dwarf that you intend to carry straight on to find the Snow Witch, as turning right will lead you back to the Hall of Worship. The dwarf tells you that he must escape quickly and return to his village now that he is free. He thanks you for helping him and hands you a leather bag, then runs off. But before he disappears, he turns and shouts, Beware the white rat! You open the leather bag and find a sling and three iron balls. You pack them away and set off along the tunnel. And a useful cryptic clue there of bewaring the white rat. Okay, I will try and remember that. The tunnel through the glacier soon leads into the mountainside itself, and the walls change from ice to bare rock you enter a large cavern which has three other exits leading from it one to your left one to your right and the main one carved as a giant skull lying directly opposite as you enter an ugly robed man steps out of the mouth of the skull holding a glass prism in his outstretched hands he commands you to turn back as only the snow witch's personal servants are allowed inside the mountain do you have a magic flute I don't, so my only other option is to attack him with my sword. There is a picture of the man. His robes are lovely and ornate. His face is probably the most cartoonish we've seen so far, but he looks pretty evil. He does sort of look like he's holding a toberone in both hands, though, I will say that. Anyhow, let's attack him with our sword and see whether he's any good at the old fighting. The ugly man sneers as you draw your sword. He rubs the prism and suddenly three identical images of himself appear. They walk towards you. Each one has a dagger raised in his right hand. Two images must be illusions. But which will you strike with your sword? So we can go left, middle or right. Now he came out of the middle. Logic says that he must be the middle one. Magic Toblerone be damned. That's a bit rubbish. The illusionist laughs out loud. Your sword merely cuts through one of his images and his dagger plunges into your shoulder. Lose two stamina points. So, down to stamina... Thirteen. The illusionist withdraws his dagger and his three images prepare to strike you again. You decide to swipe your blade across all of the images in an attempt to strike the real illusionist. Test your luck. We get... A one, ah, oh, that's good news, and a three, that's a second four. We rolled in a row, I think. Luck now down to six, but we are lucky. The illusionist screams in pain as your sword cuts into his side. He drops to the floor, and his two other images fade away. As you step over him, he starts to laugh and stands up, his wounds completely healed. Do you wish to thrust your sword at him again, or do you wish to try and smash his prism? Now again, logic would suggest that as an illusionist, he can't actually heal himself. And what he's actually done is created an illusion that he's healed himself. So what I should do is actually thrust my sword at him because he's already quite badly injured. And a second go will probably finish him off. The illusionist makes no attempt to block your sword as it cuts through the air. Your sword, instead of striking the illusionist, hits an invisible barrier and shatters leaving you with a hilt and a short broken blade. Lose one luck point and one skill point. There's nothing you can do except try and grab his probable source of power, the prism. I mean, it all sounded very plausible, didn't it? But it was completely and totally wrong. You pretend to give up the fight and then suddenly leap at the illusionist. Catching him momentarily off guard, you manage to snatch the prism out of his hands and throw it onto the floor. It shatters into tiny pieces, and the illusionist turns and flees into the skull mouth, screaming at the top of his voice. Smoke rises from the shattered fragments of the prism and forms itself into the shape of a bald fat man, a genie. Hovering in midair. he bows and thanks you for releasing him. He tells you if you call on him, he will make you invisible just once as a token of his gratitude. Without saying another word, the image shimmers and disappears. You now have to decide which way to head. Now, I don't want to follow the illusionist into the skull because he's presumably raising the alarm. So it's either left or right. We went left last time, so we'll go right this time. As soon as you step into the tunnel, an iron grill drops down behind you, barring your retreat. It is impossible to lift and there's nothing you can do but find out what lies at the end of the tunnel. You soon arrive at another iron grill, which blocks your way forward. Beyond the grill, the tunnels turn left. On the wall opposite, you see a knob, which you realise must be pressed to lift the iron grill. Unfortunately, it is beyond your reach, even if you stretch out with your sword. Do you have one or more daggers? I do not. I think this might be a bad decision that I have made. You are trapped inside the mountain tunnels. You know that it will not be long before the Snow Witch's guards discover you and condemn you to a life of slavery. You have failed in your mission. So that was pretty rubbish. But we are going to invoke the Sausagey Fingered Bookmark Rule. So we're going back to the Illusionist and the Three Tunnels. And this time, I guess, we're going to go into the Skull Tunnel. Let's do the Skull Tunnel. The tunnel soon leads into another cavern, where you see a huge, white-bearded man wearing white furs, lifting a wooden chest onto a high shelf. He is a frost giant. There is only one other exit out of his lair, via a tunnel in the opposite wall. Do you wish to run through his lair into the tunnel opposite, or do you wish to attack him? There's a nice picture of the frost giant. Nothing particularly remarkable. Very similar in style to everything we've seen so far, but yeah nice evocative and the uh, frost giant's head is poking out of the top of the frame which is a nice way of emphasizing his height so that's quite cool. I don't fancy testing my luck of five so I think we're going to have to attack him. Do you have a sling? I do have a sling and I do wish to use it so let's give that a go. You place an iron ball in the sling and twirl it around your head before releasing it at the frost giant. And if you can't kill the frost giant with a sling in a clear nod to uh, David and Goliath, then narrative determinism has no meaning. So we must test our skill. We get a one and a five. That is well below our skill. So... We succeed. Let's see what that means. The iron ball flies through the air and hits the frost giant on the temple. His huge frame crumples to the floor like a house of cards. The wooden chest he was lifting breaks open, spilling its contents. You find three ornate rings and a cracked bottle which emits a sweet-scented odour. Do you want to try on any of the rings, or would you rather walk through to the next tunnel? I mean, let's try on a ring, because it's loot. Having rubbed the bottle and sniffed your fingers, you decide that it's only perfume inside. You examine the three rings and decide which one to put on your finger. We've got a choice of gold, silver or copper. Now, I don't really wear gold jewellery. I wear silver jewellery. So, on the basis that it's good enough for me in real life, I'm going to go with a silver ring. You are now wearing a ring which drains your life force. Oh god. Roll one die and deduct the number from your skill score. Okay so we lose two skill points taking my skill down to eight and two dice and deduct it from my stamina. So I can't die I've got a stamina of 13 but I can lose eight stamina leaving me with five stamina remaining. This is going very well. If you are still alive, you pull the cursed ring off your finger and crush it beneath your foot. If you've not already done so, you can put on either the gold ring or the copper ring, or just make your way onwards. Well, first things first, I think it's time to tuck into some provisions. So we'll scoff a pork pie, some sweet and sour prawns, and a garlic and herb crusted rack of lamb to regain... 12 stamina points taking us back to 18. In for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, I'm not one to learn from my mistakes. I prefer to continually make the same mistakes over and over again, which is why I spend my free time talking to strange people on the internet rather than, you know, having a job. But uh, let's go for the gold ring. Start at the, the fancy end. You are now wearing a magic ring which will enable its wearers to resist the effects of freezing cold. Add one luck point. Excellent. So a cold resist ring. That seems very handy. And I'm going to try the copper ring. Obviously I'm going to try the copper ring. You are now wearing a magic ring which has the power to summon a warrior to your aid once only. So we get another luck point taking us to seven and summon warrior ring. Absent-mindedly wrote summon Wario, but uh, I mean, we know what it means. I literally went for the very worst ring right off the bat. Let's have a look. So what happens next? Oh, we go to the next tunnel. I've lost three skill points in total. That might be a record. You soon arrive at a crossroads in the tunnel. However, you have no time to examine the left and right branches as a strange humanoid is advancing towards you from straight ahead. Before you stands a crystal warrior, one of the Snow Witch's personal guardians, who has been sent to deal with you. He is made of quartz, which has been animated by the Snow Witch's sorcery. Edged weapons will not harm the crystal warrior. Your sword is useless. Happily, I am way ahead of you, having thoughtfully broken my sword some time ago. Do you possess a war hammer? I do. So I may succeed in smashing the Crystal Warrior to pieces. So there's a nice illustration of the Crystal Warrior, only its left side, uh, looking at us out of the frame, and he looks kind of like a very cheap... Transformers toy is the sort of vibe I'm getting from this illustration. Uh, However, that's not to say that the Crystal Warrior isn't an absolute beast, because with skill 11 and stamina 13 against my skill 8, this is going to be quite the tussle. But uh, regardless, I'm going to roll some dice. Okay, reduced to one stamina point. and I had to test my luck to get that low and survive. So he was going to reduce me to zero, but I tested my luck and succeeded to reduce the damage to one. And yes, I managed to smash the Crystal Warrior with my Warhammer. So before anything else happens, I think it's time to Scarf at least three of my remaining provisions. So uh, we'll have a uh, bowl of shreddies, an apple strudel, and yeah, go on, we'll have a third, and a whole roast suckling pig. And those together should get me to 13 stamina points. <sighs> so nearly dead. You step over the pieces of broken quartz that were once the crystal warrior and carry on along the tunnel until it ends at a t junction. Do you want to go left? All right. Well, let's go with left. The tunnel ends at a wooden door which opens when you turn the handle. You walk into a massive, high-ceilinged chamber which ends in a wall of ice. In the center of the chamber is an open marble sarcophagus with its lid propped up against its side. A white rat suddenly jumps out of the sarcophagus and runs towards you. This would be the white rat that we were told to beware of. It stops in front of you and starts to grow and change shape. Do you possess any ground minotaur horn? I do not, but I was told to beware of the white rat. Somewhat redundantly, I can't help but feel. The creature soon towers above you and develops a rough white reptilian skin. Its neck extends to support a giant head with smoking nostrils and wings protrude from its back. Before you stands an ancient white dragon. Are you wearing a copper ring? I am wearing a copper ring. Hooray. Hopefully this gets me out of the fight because the white dragon has a skill of 12 and a stamina of 14. But uh, yeah, let's let's find out. Let's find out. Not everything I was hoping for. The white dragon prepares to strike. You rub the copper ring vigorously. A warrior begins to take shape in front of you roll one die to see what warrior is summoned. So the warrior is a dwarf with a skill of seven and a stamina of six. And the summoned warrior will fight the white dragon first. So the white dragon has a skill of 12 and my dwarf has a skill of seven. I think the manufacturer of this ring may be getting a sternly worded letter in the unlikely event that I survive this encounter, complaining about the quality of the warriors that it summons. Oh well, uh, I'm going to roll some dice, then I'll let you know what happens, and then I'm going to roll some more dice. So yeah, I'm going to roll some dice. Okay, well, the dwarf wasn't completely useless. He took two stamina points off the white dragon. But I really feel like he was more of a uh, an aperitif or a, an amuse-bouche before what is likely to be the main course of me. So uh, now I've got to fight a white dragon with a skill of 12 and a stamina of 12. So I'm going to roll some more dice. Actually, I guess theoretically I could, while the white dragon is murdering the dwarf... I could do the sensible thing and mainline a tuna salad. Yeah, I'll do that. So that would give me 18 stamina. So there is the very, very faint possibility I may live through this. So uh, unsurprisingly, the White Dragon made very short work of me. Looking at the time, I think I'm going to carry on a little bit at least. I am technically the ghost of Bork Slipjowl at this point, having been murdered by a white dragon. But for funsies, we will continue with the adventure a little bit longer to see what happens. Because, yeah, it's a little bit early, according to my recording time, to be calling it a day. So, yeah, let's pretend that... I mean, I was so rubbish at fighting that it took all of the fun out of it for the white dragon. And so the white dragon decided not exactly to spare my life, but just that it was not fun, this fight anymore, and wandered off to do something more interesting. So let's, let's press on. Intrigued by the open sarcophagus, you decide to walk over to examine it. As you approach the sarcophagus, a woman's eerie laughter echoes round the chamber. A beautiful woman wearing white fur slowly rises up out of the sarcophagus. And when she smiles, you see the telltale fangs and realise with horror that the Snow Witch is a vampire. And there is a great illustration. Uh, She's got a circlet and a kind of uh, cowl appears to be made out of some kind of bird of prey and her eyes are like dark black and she's got fangs and uh, a nose ring so you know she's a bit alternative do we have any garlic we don't the snow witch climbs out of the sarcophagus and walks towards you with her mouth open her gaze is powerful and you hear a voice in your mind telling you to drop your sword and loosen your collar roll two dice is the total less than or equal to your skill it is You quickly gather your thoughts and remember that a vampire can only be killed by driving a stake through its heart. Do you possess a carved rune stick? I don't. You panic as you realise that you are not carrying the weapons needed to slay a vampire. The Snow Witch gradually gains control of your mind and forces you to bare your neck in readiness for her to drink your blood. You will be her servant forever in the world of the undead. Well, I think that really is the end. I cannot justify invoking the Sausagey Fingered Bookmark rule a second time. So that was uh, short, but hopefully sweet. I'm very kind of curious to dig into this after the recording's finished, because I feel as though we've only explored a very small amount of the uh, the game book. So I'm going to have to have another, another little rummage through this. But yeah, inevitably, we needed a whole bunch of very specific magic items to make our way through the final encounter, and we didn't have them. So Ian Livingstone, very much playing to type there. I'll be back in a few seconds with some closing thoughts. Right, that was, I think it's fair to say, brutal. I think the last time I felt so bullied by a fighting fantasy book was probably Death Trap Dungeon, which was, you know, doing it very much on purpose. It's rare for me to finish a first playthrough without cheating, but uh, not even hitting the halfway point despite cheating twice, that's pretty unusual. So did I enjoy it? Yes and no, but probably more yes than no, happily. Before we get into the nitty-gritty detail of what I liked and what I didn't, we need to talk a little bit about Caverns of the Snow Witch's origins and why that helps explain, perhaps, the unusual structure. Caverns of the Snow Witch began life in Warlock magazine. This was a fantasy magazine with a strong fighting fantasy focus that ran for 13 issues in the early 80s. Caverns of the Snow Witch was initially presented as a mini fighting fantasy adventure in issue two. This shorter adventure effectively covers the part of the adventure I played through on the podcast, with players encouraged to buy the book to find out what happens in the second half. This explains why the structure is so odd, with a really big climax right in the middle of the book. There's also a twist at the end of the confrontation with the Snow Witch, which, sadly, didn't get to enjoy thanks to my unerring ability to make poor choices. I feel like I've got some unfinished business with Caverns of the Snow Witch, so I think what I'll probably do is make the next episode one that starts from that halfway point, assuming I can ever manage to make it through the first half without dying. And I'll either do that as a bonus episode, or possibly as the next main episode, depending on how long it takes and how meaty it winds up feeling. Uh, Also, I'd like to be able to talk about the Caverns of the Snow Witch as a whole, rather than just reflecting on the first half. However, that's for another day. Today we can only look at what I actually played for this episode. Even within this relatively short space, there is a lot going on, not least with Ian Livingstone's increasing hatred of player characters. Right from the word go, this book is determined that you're not getting out of this alive, and. The threat level only escalates brutally as the adventure progresses. I think the weakest creature I faced in battle had a skill of 10, and that's just ludicrous. I think the difficulty probably worked okay for the shorter version in Warlock magazine. It adds to the replayability, but I do find myself wondering how the second half is going to top the first in terms of peril. It doesn't feel like there's anywhere to realistically go. Could be completely wrong, of course, and we will find out. Everything in Caverns of the Snow Witch feels dangerous from the moment you're offered the choice between falling off an ice bridge or being crushed by an angry mammoth. I do like how well the opening scenes capture the dangers of adventuring in a mountain wilderness. As well as the locals, you have to contend with avalanches, blizzards and the freezing cold itself, all of which chips away at your store of stamina and luck before you've even found the dungeon itself. I think Ian Livingstone does this sort of thing possibly better than anyone. I love how every wilderness encounter feels appropriate to the setting. And it makes such a stark contrast with the last bonus episode where not a great deal of effort had been put into creating a believable world. It's arguably better at generating a believable world than Scorpion Swamp, which I very much enjoyed. Now that scored so highly in technical innovation, but did struggle to convey the atmosphere of a dank swamp and generate encounters that all felt so specifically tied to that location. And it's not just the monsters, although the monsters are absolute beasts, there's also encounters that require different approaches. The fight with the illusionist is memorable, although I maintain that my logic was flawless and the sequence should have ended with me looking smug and clever rather than like a gaunt whipping boy. The dungeon is compact, but that's often a good thing too. I've said before I like the approach that breaks the adventure down into manageable chunks because it makes it easier to work out where you haven't explored yet. I think it's just easier to mentally grasp the shape of the adventure when it's broken down like that. I also really enjoyed how the adventure starts with what seems to be a simple beast hunt, then turns into a world-in-peril quest to kill the Snow Witch, and then presumably turns into something else once you've actually dealt with the witch herself. From a storytelling point of view, the simple quest turning into something bigger is a fabulous and often used narrative device, and I like the idea of revealing the main quest some of the way through the adventure. I think it helps give the story its own unique identity, and it certainly makes a change from being given a very specific quest in the prologue. And It helps make the book feel a bit more like a novel also i'm quite keen on the fact that the snow witch kind of comes off like elsa in frozen only she's also a vampire i think that should be the bold new direction for frozen three not all of the material actually lands i think it's fair to say like this is crying out for some goblins in novelty christmas hats or a slightly irate snow badger to provide an easy combat encounter early on to make you feel like you actually belong in your chosen profession. The final few encounters all feel just quite mean-spirited. The dwarf you rescue tells you to beware of a white rat, but you don't get an opportunity to do anything much with that clue. It appears and then immediately just turns into a dragon unless you have a particular item. And I feel like if you've got that item, you're going to use it so the clue doesn't mean anything. I cannot express how disappointing it was as well to discover that I did have a magical item that summoned a warrior to fight the dragon, only to see that not one of the warriors had stats high enough to do more than briefly annoy it. And everything just winds up feeling like the deck has been stacked against you. And then to get through the dragon and be told that you need a specific item to kill the Snow Witch herself, that's a real sickener. What makes it worse is that, spoilers, even if you've got the stake to kill the witch, it turns out she will still literally kill you if you have a skill less than 10. The text just asks you, do you have a skill of 10 or higher? And if you don't, you're dead. Now that is beyond mean, especially given how happy the book is to knock points off your skill throughout. I'm not aware, or I didn't come across any ways of increasing my skill. So effectively, you cannot complete this adventure if your skill is less than 10 at character generation. Now, I'll be playing through this again in order to record another podcast about it, and I'm actually looking forward to it because I'm curious to see what it's going to look like if you make those optimal choices. Now, my feeling is that even with the strongest starting character and taking the easiest path, you're still likely to emerge from the battle with the Snow Witch bruised and battered. And that's fine if you're going to finish there, but it does seem kind of churlish to hit the halfway point of an adventure incredibly badly injured. I think with the difficulty turned down a notch or sure two, or perhaps shunted later into the adventure, this would feel stronger. That said, i am no complaints really about my playthrough, especially the approach to the Snow Witch's lair. I thought that was fantastic. But also, I enjoyed the feel of the dungeon. The cold really felt like a character in the book throughout. Even in the dungeon, there'd been some thought given to the sort of minions that a snow witch might have knocking about. And I do want to shout out the artwork again. The woodcut style, that's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but I love it. It gives the book a very coherent style and atmosphere, and that to me made my suspension of disbelief a bit easier, perhaps because the artwork was already putting me in mind of people like Albrecht Dürer or some of the engravings in Fox's Book of Martyrs. The dark, heavily shaded style, but with these very crisp highlights, also feels appropriate to the source material, just as the rambunctious, lively illustrations did such a great job of bringing the City of Thieves to life. So, I hope that you'll join me the next time for the second half of Caverns of the Snow Witch. And that this slightly short escapade has been a pleasant one. If you like what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com hjdoom. A variety of tiers are available to suit every wallet, but if you want to punish me by making me play rubbish adventure game books between the fighting fantasy ones, then you can do so at the five pound level. Anything is obviously incredibly gratefully received. I'll be back very soon. So it only remains for me to say thank you so much for listening and do take care. Goodbye.